0: Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Mike Gibb, and I run RepoPulse.com, a news website for the recovery industry. I'm very excited to continue a new chapter in the growth of RepoPulse and present to you our second webinar. I'm thrilled to be joined by two of the recovery industry's most prominent and experienced professionals today to discuss the most important issues facing repossessors. My goal is to use RepoPulse as a platform to inform and educate agents and anyone else involved in the rep- repossession industry. I'm posting original news content about what's going on, producing webinars, and being a general but important source of information for the community. There is no charge whether using the site to read articles, participate in webinars, or anything else. And my goal is to make the site the first and foremost online destination for repossession agents, clients, and service providers who want to know what going on in the industry. As an FYI, this event is being recorded and a recording will be made available in the coming days. If you wish to ask a question, please press star 6 and follow the prompts to be added to the question queue. Questions will be taken at the end of the discussion. This is a very interesting time for the recovering industry. The assignment volume seems to be remaining strong and the expectation for future volume is also high. But agents are fighting what appears to be a losing battle of clients over fees, and expenses continue to increase. I speak with agents every day who wonder how much longer they will be able to continue operating in this environment. We're fortunate today to have Les McCook from the American Recovery Association and Patrick Altez from Time Finance Adjusters to join us to share their views and insights on a number of important topics. As well, they're here to answer your questions, which they will do after the discussion. So let me start the discussion, uh, Les, by asking you first, uh, what are your assessments of how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is or will conduct the review of the repossession industry that it announced recently?
1: Um, First of all, I want to thank you on behalf of uh, the American Recovery Association and our members in the industry, Mike, if you've taken the time to put this deal together. I think it's important we have a place that we can all communicate, come together, and not have issues be in the way and just uh, talk in an honest and open relationship. So uh, I thank you for that. It was uh, if was interesting you chose this as the first point. I was in a conference call today with we an attorney the other day and an attorney with a bunch of lenders, and he was talking about that this thing starts off August 29th is the date that repossessions and a new uh, process will go in place for the non-bank lenders, and he thought that. The of, by the first of October, they would be the first inspection start It would involve repossessions and more in-depth study of third-party servicers. And I was intrigued to hear his perspective that from the CFPB's point of view, he believes in the beginning that they're going to look at, it, it's going to be cost-effective for them and be probably more effective for the CFPB to be looking into an aggregator first because an aggregator serving Several clients would be much more efficient and give a broader picture of what our side of the industry looks like than, say, looking at a lender that is in a direct model. Makes sense. You know, if you've got an aggregator working for four different clients and you start into those clients going backwards, then you're getting into the aggregator much more quickly and cost-effectively from their perspective than uh, going direct. So I would think the first thing we're going to see before the end of the year, I don't know if you'll see results, but I think you'll actually see questions and probably even the opportunity that one of these large aggregators may even be looked at directly. That's kind of where I'm thinking we're going to go with it to begin with.
0: Now, just to clarify, by aggregator, do you mean something like, you know, someone like, a, or, or something like a forwarding company? Would that be considered an aggregator, or is there something else that they have in mind?
1: We call them forwarders, yes, an aggregator. They, okay, it's a term I think the CFPB uses aggregators, so they're synonymous. The uh, forwarding companies, the idea that you just pick a forwarding company and just say they're working for five different lenders and providing services and have a large network. It would be much more effective for a CFPB to go to one of those lenders and start looking at it, and then it would naturally tie into the aggregator. You know, the uh, larger participant rules, I think, are going to happen downrange where that, you know, a guy doing 100 recessions or 150 recessions a month is downstream from the guy that's doing thousands. I think that's where they they're going, and I kind of think that that's
0: when we're talking with people around the CFPB. I think that's where they're headed. Does that make sense to you, Patrick? Is that what your expectations are, yeah. or, or perhaps what you've seen or heard?
2: Yeah. Again, I want to thank you, Mike, for setting this thing up, and also I want to thank Les for participating. I think you know. Everyone who's on the call feels the pain of what's going on. I think any, you know, even though we are somewhat, quote, competing organizations, on issues like this, I think it's important that we do work together, and I'd like to uh, really thank ARA for their cooperation with TFA as we go forward on some of these issues. So thanks both to Les and to Mike. It's funny, though. I mean, this thing has been like a moving target. When we first heard about the CFPB, and its uh, coming impact on our industry, we thought it was mainly going to be only the larger participants. We were thinking, you know, J.P. Morgan, Santander, Bank of America, all of that, and that, and that it would be years, if ever, that they would go using Les's, um terms downstream to look at us. And then, then we saw them starting to look at title loan companies and smaller entities. Uh, but still, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought it would be third-party service providers. But then something happened in April of uh, 2015 where the um, CFP, CFPB sued some debt collectors, and not only them, but sued their technology vendors. In other words, they uh, sued a number of debt collection companies, but they also sued – it was like a, a company that provided the, the hardware and technology for robocalling. And their argument was that these, um, this third-party service vendor to the debt collectors, uh, using the CFPB's language, uh, that they knew or should have known that the debt collectors were engaged in unlawful conduct. So, in, not in a relatively short period of time, it's gone, it's gone from us thinking they were going to be looking over the shoulders of J.P. Morgan, and uh, and then you know here it is in April of 2015, they're. Focusing on service providers to certain, you know, unscrupulous debt collection companies, so uh, things moving faster than we had thought. Um, just asking, you know, Les uh, said that um, that they would be looking directly at the repossession agencies in a, you know, relatively short period of time. And so I, uh, I emailed Michael, Mike Stockerty with, a, he's with a creditors' right firm, Weltman, Weinstein, and Reese, that they really have specialized, or he in particular specialized in trying to get up to to speed with CFPB compliance for our industry. And this is what he said in an email I got earlier today. He says, I do not predict that they will come into the repossessor's shop in the next year or so. The pushback will be from the lenders who will have the CFPB in their offices starting now and requiring this information. The larger repossessions, repossessors and forwarders I do see being audited sometime in late 2016 or 17. This is all just a prediction based on how other industries have been regulated. So I think Les's timeline that he's hearing is pretty similar. That's, we might skate through the rest of 2015 without the CFPB visiting a forwarder or an aggregator or a big repossessor, but it seems like several of these creditors' rights attorneys who are focusing on the CFPB, think that that's coming. And, and, and there's a, a there's a sidebar to that might what I just said, that maybe we should be mindful if we're if in the meantime we're working for companies that might be unscrupulous, because that's how that one technology service provider got sideways with the CFPB by providing services to an unscrupulous lender. You know, we, uh, there's there's companies that pop into our mind, maybe some title loan companies or larger title loan companies who we know are, you know, might be flying under the radar on certain issues that that might that might be the thing that triggers their involvement with us in particular. So, I think less is is right on when this thing it's going to start. They're going to start breathing down our back.
0: You raise a very interesting question, uh, or not question, but you raise a very interesting dynamic, Patrick, and that what you're saying is that due diligence doesn't just flow from the client to the agent, but it's got to go back from the agent to the client. Now, do you think that most agents or most of your members are looking at it that way? You know, like from, from the conversations I've had, you know, it's, you know, when you talk to an agent about compliance, is that the agent, you know, the clients are forcing it and pushing it and talking about it, but they're not really kind of going back to the client and saying, well, are you doing things that you're supposed to be doing? Are you seeing that dynamic shift now? Are you seeing agents going to the clients and saying, I need to know what you're doing? I
2: I have not seen much of that. I, I, you do hear when you go to the conventions, not just TFA, but the larger conventions like or networking opportunities like NARS that, certain agencies are trying to get away from doing, let's say, title loan work because it, it does, uh, it A, it's more dangerous, you know, debtors not willing to lose their car over a, you know, $1,000 loan, you know, it, and also just the concern that they're dealing with the unscrupulous client. Now, what makes it difficult is, at least in the, the case of our agency, is sometimes the name of the client suggests that they're a financial institution when, in fact, they're, they're not. You know, you see that all the time in a buy here, pay here car lot where you're, you're getting a deal from, you know, Mid America Finance, and it's actually Joe's used cars in Lubbock, Texas. And you would have no way of, uh, you know, assessing that. So, so I the answer to that is I'd, I I wish it would happen, but I'm not sure to what degree
1: it is happening. Mike, if I may, yep. I, I think that an amazing thing over the last. 60 days has been a conversation that calls compliance that don't know where they're at, that really don't have a strategy for dealing with third-party servicers, much less in the repossession side, and are looking for information and data and presentations about developing uh, their own policies and procedures, and are looking for guidelines. The, the you know, When you talk about the as we've talked about before, when you talk about the big ten lenders, they've got whole clients compliance departments. I heard the number that Allied Bank gave out that they they spend 27 million dollars a year on compliance in their entire operation, and that's for every that's handling everything they comply. That's their entire compliance budget. When you take a mid sized lender, a regional lender, they may have 18, 20 offices or 30, a a bank, with a branch with 30 or 35 offices, they don't have those policies in place. And we've had them reach out to us in the last 60 days. And I'm flying out tomorrow morning to uh, give a couple of presentations on the East Coast to a couple of the clients that are just that, you know, that are 20 to 30 offices and spread out in three or four states. And they just need help. They're really not sure where to go, what to, what to turn to. So I think this is a great opportunity from our side of the industry to develop relationships with people like that and have, and be involved in the ground floor of trying to figure out what a standard is, what is an education, what is a, a training program, what are we looking for, what should they be looking for, what are we doing as associations, and what are we doing as an industry in regards to uh, helping them identify the uh, necessary requirements or the necessary things that the CFPB would be looking for. So I I do think it's a change, and it's just occurred in the last 60 days that we're getting these kind of contacts, and that uh, we've had great opportunities to make great presentations to these people.
0: So you're saying that the contacts mostly are coming from the smaller companies, the ones that maybe aren't spending $27 million a year on compliance? Yes.
1: You know, mid-size, mid sized lenders. You know, we're talking about people that are still paying our agents good work, good money. I mean, they want to be. Our keynote speaker at our convention last week, is a, she's from a credit union in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I didn't even. This is such a surprise to me. She she's in her credit union, is literally in the subprime marketplace, and she talked about. And she's on the CFPB committee that deals with credit unions, and she talked about how important the relationship was with our industry and why and how why because of the models they operated in and they were strictly in the subprime marketplace or significantly in the subprime marketplace that without us they would not be profitable and without us they couldn't be in the model because we were there to recover the cars and it was great what a great presentation here a person come in and talk about the relationships we had uh relationships similar to what we had 15 years ago they still exist and i think the opportunity exists today and if you're doing it right on if you're doing if you're running your operation efficiently and you're running it compliance and you're willing to prove it, you're willing to document it and you're, living to, you're willing to live by it, I think there's still a place to go where you can get fair fees. I think you can still build and maintain relationships with clients that are of value to both sides. And I think the CFEB is going to give us an opportunity to recapture some of the market share of the opportunity to start to rebuild our businesses and our lives from it.
0: Let me, let's, let's take that, that point that Les just brought up about, you know, client, you know, getting in the industry being contacted by clients and working together and let's take that beyond the CFPB, Patrick, and let's talk about you know, one of the biggest issues, or if not the biggest issue, that's certainly facing agents, and that's a contingency business model. Um, how can the industry work with clients to move away from contingency and get back to a business model that works for both sides? Well, that's, it's funny. That's a question. That's probably the question
2: that is the most discussed issue at, you know, all the c- conventions, all the online forums. It, it, is the, it's the thing that has really gutted our industry is contingent. Uh, handling. You know, we've talked about it at conventions. And, you know, Les and I or other industry people write blogs and get articles published here and there and just saying how it's foolish, it's dangerous, it incurs violence. But so far, at least up until recently, I've not heard uh, much move away from that. Um, you posed a question to us about how, um, how can I get away from a model. And move to one that works both for the client and the agent. And I I think we need to demonstrate the the client needs to realize that they they need to wake up to the fact that it's really not working for them either. Although some of them might be willingly ignorant of that, Um, I think that they're losing um, millions of dollars in recoverable collateral because they're assigning contingent accounts, which sort of incentivize, if I can use the if you excuse my French, sort of a half-assed efforts on the part of the repo industry. I mean, it's something we all know. We hear about all the conventions that since they're going to pay contingent, you know, the uh, professional field agent's not going to devote the the attention or the effort to an account that they would if there was incentive to recover the car. And, you know, the net result of that is our lower recovery ratios. Um, I do appreciate a few years ago – uh, ARA had a push uh, through a CPA and trying to draw some information from uh, RDN uh, as far as recovery ratios. Um, I think that's an idea we should revisit uh, that, to me, th- those numbers would be hard to argue against. It, you know, the, They're trying to save a little bit of money on the front end by minimizing repossession fees, but I think it pushes you know, all the problems downstream to the charge-off department. Um, we had a meeting in Chicago, I think it was last year, with the the Corp, which is the Council of Professional Repossessors, and we met with uh, several of the forwarders, and at the end of the meeting, uh, the forwarder said, well, if you can demonstrate, uh, do some sort of a cost analysis of what it costs you guys to do business, and if we if we see you guys aren't making money in the business, We'll we'll make a pitch to our, our creditors to try to get your fees up. Well, it, it was a, a concession, I guess, but they're sort of dumping the burden of proof onto our industry. I didn't attend NARS this year, but I heard there was a, a great presentation about what it costs to do a repossession, and I and I think it demonstrated that under the contingent model, you know, the repossessor's is not making money. But I still haven't heard any concessions by lenders or forwarders to move off of that model. And I would say maybe it's our time to put the burden of proof back on them that that, uh, we know if we monitor our our own numbers or the numbers of a a good agency, uh, we should make it known that if uh, if a creditor is not getting, you know, a certain recovery ratio out of their portfolio that's going through a forwarder, uh, you know, a good number would be, you know, historically been, you know, 60 to 70 percent of cars in the barn out of 100 assignments. And if they're not meet, meet, reaching those numbers, they need to ask why, because they, um, they're they keeping their, uh, their re- recovery costs down. But if I was a shareholder for one of these creditors, I'd be screaming that they're losing so much money out the back door and unrecovered collateral. So I just think um, unless it really strikes the, the creditor that – that paying higher fees is a better return on their investment, a better ROI. I don't think they're going to move off the contingent plan. And I think it's within our power to change that their view of that.
0: You said it is within our
2: power, or is it? I think it is. If we yeah. do, if we revisit the idea of uh, of demonstrating our recovery ratios by dealing direct.
1: I think there's... I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think that the the burden of this thing, and one thing that when you go to other industries and you observe in the debt buying world, the buyer payer world, and other places that we go and attend their conferences and listen to their meetings, and we look at their discussions and the power they have to move government entities or have voices, they they're united. They, they get together. They you know, look, and I don't mean, you know, that every buy here, period here dealer is a member of the NABD because Gleedom has a great operation. There's a couple of different ones, but they cooperate together. I mean, you see them at each other's shows, you see them sharing the information. And the one thing that they have done such a fantastic job with is data. The uh, program that you talked about at NARS, you know, we took eight companies around the country, but those eight owners of those companies paid almost $4,000 a piece to this CPA firm and gave us the data to create this deal. The problem is that one association cannot carry the burden of cost for an industry all the time. Even though we continue to try to share, this is a project, a data project should be an industry project. And it should be a project that people of all levels can participate in. Because the more data that you have, the more complete that it is, the better it's going to be. And I know from talking to these clients, and I've seen results from them. I actually have been lucky enough to be into a double-sided conversation with a client and, a, and an agent that presented documentation of costs and documentation of issues and documentation of deals, and they got a raise from the client. So I know that they're willing to take that information if it's provable, And it's believable and it's consistent. They're willing to take that information, go upstream to their people, and get a raise. That's why whenever I hear these, a lender X is paying X, well, that's not true. Because lender X, in, in some cases, is paying X plus to different people for different standards, different reasons, for different things. But you know how that X plus took place was because they walked in the door with data substantiated their claims of a need of an increase, and they got it. And I'm saying, as an industry, if we could find that tool, that resource, and that opportunity to work together to develop our own data points, I think we could change the way it would work immediately. I, you know, and this isn't this isn't something that we can just do immediately. It's going to take time. The project with the accountants uh, last time was seven it took seven months to get it off the ground. Um, you know, with the new people at RDM and the uh, way that they do, I think we could go back to the four or five major software companies and get to complete cooperation, working in the process. I know that the people uh, and a couple of them have already been willing to help and offer before. Scott Jackson and Rand have offered to help with theirs. So, you know, I think it's possible And I think that we've moved with the other thing that I think to address, might go back to your original purpose of the idea of uh, how we get a client into the direct model or or, or get away from the contingency. Uh, I'm really intrigued by some of this routing software technology that I've seen over the last few months and looked at it again at the convention. I think that using, it's a combination. I think data is number one. We've got to find a way as an industry to secure it, to process it, and present it. But I think and be able to be creative in the using of this data and embracing a technology that may be able to add proof to the backside of performance could really open some great eyes and some great opportunities for us. I don't have the total answer yet. I've looked at it. I'm intrigued by it. You know, when you sit down with a pen and paper in the middle of the night, you try to think of how you could use it to your benefit. It's amazing to me with some of the options that uh, you can think of, and I really do believe that we can start to do that. I think that if if you can demonstrate a cost of going out and performing an action for a client, and a client was willing willing to pay you for that, or understand that you had to recover the cost plus the some fair expectation of a profit, and then you could prove that you were there, then now you start to see a scenario where you could start to build a model that brings them back and brings back the trust and brings back the factors of control that we've lost. And I'm really really intrigued with some of those possibilities.
0: Patrick, let me ask you this um, you know we've talked about you know the data uh, as being important and I, and I couldn't agree more but there's got to be a relationship I guess you can't you know I, I don't think it's as simple as an agent just emailing a PDF to get them to sort of you know to get that client to kind of see the to sort of see the light what's you know how do you sort of you know manage that relationship or uh, create a relationship, I guess, in the first place, that you can have that level of communication with a client so that you can have that conversation about, hey, this isn't working for me. Here's why it's not working for me. What can
1: we do? Well, well Mike, I, they're hungry for it. I'm sorry, I don't know where the question is. That's okay. That's you
0: can go ahead,
1: Mike. I, I, I think that the clients are hungry for it. I do not know of a single client in the country, and I don't care what model they're in, you take the largest client in the country that's in an in a, uh, indirect model, they will sit down. I can promise you that they will offer you an opportunity to sit across the table for them and have a business discussion that will change their bottom line or how they do business in a more secure, uh, more compliant, and cost-effective way. I, I, don't, that's not the, I don't think the issue is getting the sit-down and getting them back and forth. Now maybe there's some buy-in issues, but I gotta be I gotta be honest with you. You know the entire time our industry just keeps clamoring and banging bells that you know we just want more money without anything to back it up in a financial sense or as a business, a professional sense, in a professional sense. You know we can all make these claims, and when you look at the cost factors of what we looked at. By uh, choosing a, a CPA firm and an entity that's not inside our industry without cross to bear to benefit one way or the other and just look at numbers and, and give a numbers projection back, to me, was an amazing fact because they didn't have a dog in the hunt. It was just, to them, it was numbers. It was taking them correctly and understanding a uh, financial Investigation and in-depth investigation of financial stability and wherewithal of our companies and how we how we did it. The clients took that. The trouble is, it wasn't a broad enough um, reach of data to be able to come to a very conclusive. I mean, no client disagreed with the amounts. Some people disagreed because they said that they would be losing money. Some of them said they would make a ton of money with that, and their costs were different. But we all understand that you know these companies mostly were larger companies because of the cost factor. Most smaller companies didn't have four thousand dollars to pay. So obviously we had larger companies. We did have a good cross platform across the country. So there were some regional cost bias built into the presentation. But can you imagine how much it would have been if you had had 18 companies with cost bias as far as size and regional challenges or cost factors thrown in that's what i'm saying I mean, we you know you can't burden one entity with the cost of something like this and uh, and not only that it's a much broader picture if you can take in independence you can take in other association etc. If you could take in the factors and it can be an industry solution with industry numbers and with industry's inclusiveness in it and i think that would I, I don't think we'll have any trouble walking the door of a client. And just like I said a while ago, those that have walked in the door with good numbers, provable numbers, have gotten those increases over the last two years. I've seen them and I know they exist.
2: Less on that, I mean, I, 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 at that, that, um, that point I would have to say, that to me, I felt like the more compelling argument was, was something that would affect the client's bottom line. In most industries, I've not seen much of a concern for corporate America uh, if their vendors are making money or not, or if their vendors are struggling, or if their vendors are are, uh, operating in the red. And I I know we would all have some clients that would care. I know I have some clients that would care, and I'm glad to hear you've seen some success stories. Um, But... I, I don't know if the forward, like the big aggregators, to use your term, I'm not sure they care if we're losing money or not. They, they, Those that have a foot in the repossession industry know. Uh, they've seen uh, some, a lot of their vendors go out of business, go bankrupt. Um, I, just, I guess I, I I, hope what you're saying is true. I just guess I don't, I, and maybe I should sit in on some of these meetings to see that happen, but... I think the, mo- the more compelling argument is going to be A, uh, the need for CFPB compliance and the need to do business with uh, professionals to do that, and that might be a little bit more costly, and that B, that uh, using an efficient, uh, proficient repossessor is going to add to their bottom line in recovery ratios. That's just, um, uh, just, just kind of what I personally believe.
1: And I'm not arguing the point with you. I agree with you. What I'm saying to you is to how we get there and their willingness to listen. And I don't say that... I didn't mean to intimate that they were all concerned about our work with all But I will tell you the CFPB is concerned. If you go down their original... Uh, I think it was the April 2012, you know, financial security of your third-party servicers was one of the things that they looked at and expected you to understand and know something about. So... Look, you know, it's not just your own free will generosity. Mm -hmm. Client conversation that says, you know, I can add a million dollars to your bottom line, they don't seem to care anymore. But when things are good, then certain things don't matter anymore. Their repossession rates are down as a percentage. Uh, Their repossession costs are down as a percentage. All the things, even in the increased numbers that they're going through right now, they're still under budget and under deal, and that's all they care about. Mm -hmm. You know, we can walk in the door to a client Five years ago, we were able to walk in the door and say, without increasing one dollar of your cost, you know, we can add a million dollars to your bottom line on the back side, and they didn't care. It was amazing to me that you, you, know, you could demonstrate that it, it's not a cost. Hmm. If I if I tell you that I can, I will trade you five. I will give you one thousand dollars for every five hundred dollars you give me. You know. They look at it as their cost is going at $500. I look at it as their bottom line increase is $500. And it's that bridge that we don't seem to be able to gap because there seems to be a failure for them to understand or care about it at some point. They worry about cost and they worry about money coming back in. You know, because I hope I'm saying it clear.
0: Patrick, you raised uh, an interesting point um, and a comment you made just a minute ago, and that's you know sort of the, the the more compelling argument is the need for CFPB compliance. Are you saying that you know sort of if the industry kind of got together and figured out some standard or some process to sort of identify the compliant agents versus those that haven't aren't compliant or haven't been you know, taking the necessary steps? Do you think that would be a way to sort of move people toward Move the industry more toward a, a business model where fees would be, you know, higher fees would be paid.
2: I think so. A DM. I, I definitely think so. I think that uh, what you read out there is the cost of compliance, A and B. The 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 demands of the compliance, by the very nature, is going to uh, is it's going to be a barrier barrier to entry for some agents. You know, some mom and pop agencies are not going to be able to. Compliant. I mean, it's not. It's sad. I know this is you know this is American. Everybody should have an opportunity to start their own small business and succeed. And uh, but uh, the fact is that these compliance costs and requirements for uh, your your physical plant and facilities and and your personnel at some point that's going to be a a big burden for them to get by. And it's still kind of still moving. I mean. uh, Again, I, I contacted Michael Dockerty. I said, well, what, where do we stand right now? What is the requirements that you see right now? And uh, he wrote a piece that's going to be in the TFA guide. But it's, at this point, it's essentially, you know, he said, I'm, I'll, I'll kind of pare it down. It's essentially a compliance management system with elements to include, you know, policies and procedures, which would be manuals, training, monitoring and corrective actions which would be driven by complaints, uh, a checklist for a gap analysis to where your client systems aren't working essentially so um, but that I think it's going to change I mean right now it seems like it's ongoing training, follow-up on complaints uh, and you know certain pol- you know policies and procedures and but it's going it's going to grow I mean at, at some point it could be, or they don't let you use uh, Android phones because they're too permeable to hacking, or they might, uh, uh, they, I know certain vetting organizations require uh, background checks for every employee up and down, you know, from the yard guy to the uh, to the part-time secretary. I mean, that, it could grow to that size of compliance, but we don't know exactly yet where this thing's going to land. Um and so, I mean, so right now the, the, the role of the associations is, is largely to help the members uh, meet their requirements as they stand now, providing, you know, manuals, help, policies and procedures, offer training, uh, train them how to deal with uh, monitoring the and correcting, offering corrective actions. But as, as the footprint grows, I mean, we're all going to have to grow in how, how big this thing gets. And it sounds like it's going to get... It's going to get
1: pretty get pretty big, so. It's it's and the the, word, the key words that you just used I think are compliance management systems. In a conversation I was talking about with the lawyers and the lenders the other day, they've talked about the client that has their internal compliance management system looking to their outside third parties to having their system closely mirror theirs help them to be most successful in their relationships with their third-party services. So, Mike, when you go back to the question about consistency, you're talking about some form of uniformity. I think the thing that we have today is we're fortunate enough that CFPB will never endorse a program or endorse an idea of training or They will look at you and say training is important and they will say that they consider this one to be sufficient. I think that the the, uh, description of terms, the definitions, the uh, programs, I think that the more clearly that our industry embraces from within and develops from within a uh, couple of these products or a couple of these ideas, the more... Likelihood we're going to have to be looked on upon our choices in our uh, operations more favorably by the CFPB and therefore by extension to the clients. So, you know, not having 15 different training programs or 13 different management systems or 17 different deals, I don't, there should be multiple. They're not advocating shrinking of, but I'm still, no matter what, I mean, they should be able to look, communicate, share, especially since, you know, as members or as independent operators within the industry, you're challenged every day because a client has one set of uh, parameters or another set of parameters or one thought process as to what they want to see as training or like you just brought up that, you know, they either want everybody get it all the way down to the bottom. I think eventually we are going to have to. And I, this is something two years ago that was told to me by a Wells Fargo's the lady. at Wells Fargo that was taking over the repossession compliance piece for her bank. You know, is that you know they're going to look at the repossessors like they do the collectors, whether they come in and look at operations and look at uh, procedures. And, they care about the person in the what that person understands, what that person's qualifications are, and training, and that's the bottom line representation. They're not there. I think we're probably a year and a half away, but I think we should get our heads out of the sand and try to find some uniting place to sit together and find out, you know, what we can do together to agree that we help identify and guide us things instead of having a damn our throat help us we should be in charge of trying to put something together that's acceptable somewhere else and, you know, maybe gain some favorite position to the government and to the clients that, you know, we're trying to do it ourselves without haven't done to us.
0: I mean, that's something that, I mean, I guess probably should happen sooner rather than later because, I mean, I, I think the longer that the industry waits, the more likely they are that something's going to be forced on you, be it from clients or by you know the CPV or some regulator or some legislation or whatever you know if the industry is more proactive I think that you know they, they it gives them more control over you know what you know what that system ultimately looks like right
1: yes and I think we're I, when you say you know the court of these attorneys in this conference call you're looking at October when they start walking to the door of course they don't walk in the door and do it in one day but you know, the funny thing was with convention last week and having a client sit next to me and we were talking about a similar subject. He said, you know, we don't know either. He said, well, we know the day the first investigation comes down and the first fine comes down against a company for whatever they did wrong and third-party servicing or repossessions. He said, then we'll all know. Right. So that's, we're, we're getting there, and we're getting there quickly. But even at that point, if we don't have solutions prepared, or if we're not thinking enough far enough ahead as an industry to prepare ourselves for that day, then I think we're being neglectful of what our duties are, or our responsibilities as kind of businessmen to uh, plan for that to plan for that day in advance.
0: Patrick, let's move on and you know look at their horizon. What's your expectation for? assignment volume for the rest of 2015? Um, Again, I'm just
2: kind of regurgitate what I read, and I try to keep track of all the industry's trends as best as I can. And uh, I think that the assignment volume will explode in the next year or so, And and that's an opinion that's shared by others far more knowledgeable than me in the auto lending and auto financing industry. I mean, auto loan delinquencies currently are at the lowest they've been in like 10 years, and it's encouraging more and more lenders to enter into the field of indirect lending. I mean, let's talk to this lady from this credit union that they're jumping into subprime or indirect lending in a big way because right now it's profitable and, and it looks relatively risk-free. There was an article I came across uh, earlier this year in the Wall Street Journal that talked about The U.S. Office of Comptroller of Currency, which regulates the largest banks, says that it's seen a trend towards relaxed standards and riskier behaviors on auto loans. And this is a quote. We're putting banks on notice that we have concerns, the OCC's deputy controller says. It's definitely an area that warrants some attention. And the Center for Responsible Lending has labeled this reckless driving. So it's sort of like a perfect storm. Brewing that uh, delinquencies are down, the the mood of the buying public is pretty strong. Uh, But there are so many uh, players entering the market, offering these subprime loans and and pushing and they're dropping the making the bar lower and lower for people to get these loans. That's a and b. These loans, I read somewhere that the average term for these loans the average term of a used car subprime loan is like 71 months now so the consumer is just going to be you know eternally upside down in this car Um, right now from again this is articles you would read like in Forbes or credit.com or other um, articles that uh, currently the mood of the American public seems to be let's make our car payments you know back in when I was a kid growing up in the repo business, it was sort of an axiom that people would make their house payments and they would miss a car payment, that their main job was to uh, hang on to the, the house. Well, maybe through the uh, housing bubble and people now renting or whatever, but that commitment to make the keep current right now rests on auto loans. But that I think that can change. I think it will change. Um, a lot of... Um, Big organizations or a big financial um, analysts are predicting, you know, the, uh, the potential of a bubble, it's not unlike that of uh, of the real estate boom in the late you know 2000s. So uh, I, I just think it, the delinquencies. The, there's a lot of paper on the streets. Delinquencies are low. Everybody predicts they're going to rise. Um, it sort of begs the question: when they do rise, who's going to get that work? It's going to go to the forwarders. Are going to go direct to the agents. And I think that um, through what we've been talking about today, I think that uh, the lenders, and I'm hearing this too, just like Le- Les is the lenders are who have were at once time once courted by the big aggregators. They there are some that are rethinking that strategy and thinking we need to be more directly on top of our own internal compliance. We need, need to be more directly on top of compliance of our service providers and sometimes going to an aggregator um, offers too much insulation or too you know a, a level of uh, a lack of accountability from the field person to the to the, uh, the bank and uh, there was a I came across a quote by Warren Buffett saying uh, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked which is kind of funny yeah. And uh, I think the the subprime lending tide is going to go out. You know, I, 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 hopefully it won't be too bad for the American economy, but it's being predicted, you know, virtually all over the place in the press. And so uh, auto delinquencies are going to rise. And then, then I think it's going to be seen uh, by the lenders, you know, who are they, who are they partnered with and what areas are they what areas have they been swimming naked? So I, th- I think volumes are going to go up. I think that's almost a given. what what becomes of that I think is still a uh, question mark.
0: Les, do you agree with that? I, I, I could not
1: I don't even know where I could add anything. I thought you did a great job and I agree. I see twenty five to thirty percent over the next nine months. Could be higher uh, out-term some as these uh, 72-month loans starting to get into the uh, three-year frame. So, you know, I don't see the bubble aspect of it yet. I think it's on solid ground and solid footing unless something happens in the economy that we don't know about today.
0: So is there anything that the agent, you know, that agents should be sort of looking for? I mean, do you kind of look at the unemployment rate? Do you look at, you know, are there sort of economic, fact, you know, economic factors that you look at for when, or is this just that will that tip, sort of this increase or this spike in, in assignment volume, or is it something that's just sort of, sort of that will just gradually build up?
1: You know, it's kind of like it's interesting. I just got a call from somebody the other day, said so they were out picking up oil field equipment again. Almost like the tip of the '80s, yeah. You know, whenever the oil went down, and where the oil prices where it is, and with some of the money devalued in China right now, we're a little bit unsure. but It is always, Mike. I think it's consistent over and over again. If you look at the patterns uh, of what happens to create the rotation, I mean, it just comes around again. You know, it'll it'll break. Something will happen. We'll go into, you know. A, somewhat of a recession into the cycle again. The thing is, I'm not sure we ever got out of the last recession, so I think that's part of the problem right now, where we're kind of feeling solid that we're not going anywhere, because I don't think we've seen the great rise yet. I think once you see the next rise and you're looking at it, then I think you need to pay every dumb thing off you've got. I think you need to secure your thing, start preparing for your future because you know the downside's coming soon afterward.
0: So. uh, since we have you know, the American, you know, the, the ARA and TFA representative Patrick, let me ask you this: Are there ways that the associations can work together better to make the industry better for all agents? Um,
2: we're starting to see some of that already. I mean, ten years ago, back in my dad's day, uh, it would have been unthinkable that you know I'm on the phone sharing a, a webinar with. Uh, the boss of ARA. I mean, that I think we've, we've come a long way. We've got a longer way to go. Um, this is not a sidebar, but this is sort of a, a jumping off point for the CORP. Uh, I think the CORP, which is the uh, Council of Professional Repossessors, which is made up of every national and state uh, repossession association, I think it has the potential of working, of bridging some of these political impasses that have existed in the past. And coming up with um, some pretty neat um, uh, new ideas. Like re- recently, they um, issued a policy statement about you know what consists, what what is a voluntary repossession. I mean, because we had seen the industry had seen a real spike in clients assigning accounts as voluntaries, when in fact you know you, your agent would come out, go out there, and it would it's, it's not a voluntary. You know, this guy sit on the hood with a shotgun saying, "Come and get it." <laughs> and they were being assigned like that in an attempt to get the prices down. And so the corp, you know, sort of their first swing, it, it wanted to address that and come up with a definition. what What is a voluntary repossession? In late 2014, they issued a policy statement about the injustice of contingent repossession assignments. I, I think that the corp uh, could strengthen the wording of that document uh, but even as it is, it's not a small thing. Let's say, you know, if a, uh, as uh, you know, as lending grows and defaults rise, there's going to be lawsuits, and the plaintiff's attorney is going to look at the bank or the repossessor standing next to him and, sa- and say, you know, your own industry says contingent repossessions are, are dangerous. Why did you do that? Why did you assign accounts on that basis? Were you just trying to save a little money? That's that's just not going to. Sell well, and there's uh, there's there's cases out there uh, currently that uh, contingent repossession handling is at the heart of them. And I think at some point, not only CFP is going to start pushing down uh, uh, against some of these bad practices, but you know I think the the litigation is going to push up against it too. And to whatever degree the industry and the associations can come together and come up with best practices or um, I, I think that would serve everyone uh, really well. Um, and I think, again, I'll give a shout out to NARS. I mean, NARS was sort of the genesis for the Corp, and, and in the group, I mean, meetings like that do show a sense of unity that never existed 10 years, 15 years ago. And so. Um, to, to whatever strength, whatever whatever mechanism can get us working together, the associations and those in and out of the associations working together, sharing a single voice. I think that it will empower us to make some of these
0: changes. Les, what are your thoughts?
1: You know, I echoes what Pat said. I, it is it would this would not have happened in the past, and I'm really disappointed two of the entities, we are not sharing this deal today with others. I, um, the pettiness that still goes on, the backbiting, the, it's just crazy, even in today's world. But, you know, I think Patrick said something that may be a trigger for change. You know, my father and his father looked at the world differently, and they would not have agreed or they would not have thought it was good business practices to have what we do today or even have in ours. And I think that young people coming into the industry, if they open their eyes and they look around and figure out, you know, what how to make an association work for them, what they mean, uh, what they could be. And then, look, we changed. At the ARA, we changed tremendously our direction and purpose and cause over the last five years. I mean, if you look at benefit programs and you look at continuing education programs and you look at a lot of the things that we're trying to undertake today, that didn't exist before. Whenever our fathers started these things years ago, it was a way to control and keep other people out. It was a way to control the business model. It was a way to control a lot of things. And they thought the way to do it was to suppress the ones that weren't in. And, um, you know, in our world today, we don't believe that. We we believe in embracing everyone that's qualified and everyone that wants to be seen as professional and present themselves as professionals to the industry, to the uh, lending community. I think they should be embraced, and I think that those young people that are coming in today that should not carry those biases and not listen to those biases that are being spoken to, and look for themselves, they'll find out they could be the ones to turn this thing around and to uh, figure out how we work together without the backbiting and without the accusatory and without the pickings that's still going on in today's world. So that's my hope. It's the young people. The young people will create change. They'll help us get to where we need to be, and they'll help everyone understand, that they're going to have to look at it themselves. They can't sit in a room. I mean, if you were to sit in a room with our fathers, with a bunch of young people, I remember those days, Patrick was there, uh, we, would, we sat at a table on the outside and listened to those old guys, we're going, holy crap, how bad are all those people out there that we don't know about?
2: Yeah, we were the kids. You know, we
1: would have never dreamt, we thought they had long horns and tails hanging off and, you know, deformed beasts we didn't know because we heard so many bad things about them. So, you know, and it turned out not to be true, and in our age, we've seen change. And again, I think it's the young people in this. The associations have a lot to offer, and they have a lot to help how clients will perceive us, accept us, and especially with the CFPB. The one thing that they've told us every time we talk to them, they like to hear from associations because they feel like they're getting a cross uh, representation of the industry. The idea that uh, somebody cares enough to be a part of an association means something to them because it means professionalism and caring. And learning opportunities that aren't there for most individual companies. So, if you look at the perspective of government and the entities there and what they perceive about them, it gives us great hope for the future that as uh, that the associations will come together in these projects we talked about all day long about numbers and data and programs and you know not having accountability of different. Uh, or having an expansion of different programs to uh, fight each other that, that people continue to have to pay more and more for. There's a lot of things associations could do and a lot of things that we could do them much better, much more efficiently, and much more effectively if we get them together.
0: Great, on that note, I am going to open up. If you wish to ask a question, uh, we've only just got a couple minutes. here going to cover a couple of quick, quick questions. If you'd like to ask the question, press star 6 on your phone, and that will put you into the question queue. Let's we'll see if anybody has any questions.
1: Can't be a lot of questions. Patrick, sure so thorough today. It's like <laughs> an education. It, doesn't, it any,
0: doesn't look like there there are any questions. We'll give it a few more seconds in case anybody wants to... To ask anything before we wrap it up maybe they all left uh, there's still some people still on yeah. well if nobody has any questions and I'm going to wrap it up and say that that is all the time we have for today if you do have any questions if you want to follow up uh, after the fact please feel free to contact me My email address is mike at canvasbusinessmedia.com, and I'll be happy to try and get answers for you. I definitely want to thank Patrick and Les for for taking the time to share their insights today. Uh, I thought the quality of information they shared was outstanding. Uh, Be sure to check out repopulse.com in the next day or two for an article related to today's webinar, along with instructions about how you can download and share our recording. Uh, On behalf of myself and RepoPulse.com, thank you for joining us today. I look forward to collaborating with you on the site or having you participate in an upcoming webinar. Patrick, Les again, thank you so much, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Mike.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Thank Thank you, everyone, for being here.